Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Darcy's pen. And I'll just say right up at the top that we will be doing our very best to be somewhat dignified and avoid too much of the very obvious innuendo in this episode. It's almost too easy, (laughs) but just know that it lives in our hearts. So like we see it, we acknowledge it, and we will try to move on. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So to set the scene, we're talking about Darcy. So therefore, we're talking about Pride and Prejudice. This is the part in the book where Elizabeth is at Netherfield Park to be with her sister Jane while she is unwell. You know, Mrs. Bennett had that great plan to send her without the carriage (laughs) in the rain. It worked out great. So in the evening, Elizabeth goes downstairs and has to spend time with Mr. Bingley, Caroline, Mr. and Mrs. Hurst, and of course, Mr. Darcy. And Elizabeth is content enough to keep to herself and just kind of watch Caroline's just absolutely excellent attempts at flirting with Mr. Darcy. I mean, A plus, really, just tipped off. This is like instruction manuals on how to flirt, right? Just like do the exact opposite. The exact opposite, exactly. So here I'm going to read a portion of the text. Um, there's a little bit of a setup and it's it's really, it's quite humorous. Like Diane and I debated whether we wanted to like do this as a some theater production for you. <laughs> and lucky for you, we opted not to. You know, I'm going to read through this until we get to, to get to the reference here. So Elizabeth took up some needlework and was sufficiently amused in attending to what passed between Darcy and his companion. The perpetual commendations of the lady, either on his handwriting or on the evenness of his lines, or on the length of his letter, with the perfect unconcern with which her praises were received, formed a curious dialogue, and was exactly in union with her opinion of each. How delighted Miss Darcy must be to receive such a letter! He made no answer. You write uncommonly fast. You're mistaken. I write rather slowly. How many letters you must have occasion to write on the course of a year? Letters of business, too. How odious I should think them. It's fortunate, then, that they fall to my lot instead of yours. Pray tell your sister that I long to see her. I have already told her so once by your desire. I'm afraid you do not like your pen. Let me mend it for you. I mend pens remarkably well. Thank you, but I always mend my own. How can you contrive to write so even? He was silent. He's got nothing left to say, Caroline. Leave him alone. (laughs) So good. So this is one of those scenes that if you're not familiar with the period, you might be thinking, mend his pen? Like, what is she talking about? Can't he just go grab another bick from the old drawer? Right. So what we're talking about here is a quill pen. And quill pens are perhaps the most widely used writing instrument throughout history. And certainly none of Jane Austen's novels would be possible without them. Quill pens, which were usually goose quills, but could also be peacock if you're fancy, mm-hmm. swan, or even crow feathers if you're very goth, always <laughs> needed sharpening, trimming, and shaping, just as today's pencils need sharpening. So it wasn't the sort of thing where you just, you know, you don't just like go out to the barnyard and pluck one off the bird. <laughs> There's a process. So the feathers would have been selected from one of the first five flight feathers of any large bird. And what we mean by flight feathers are like, you know, like when you see like a bird's wings, those kind of the big feathers that almost look like a hand, if you're kind of thinking of it that way. Feathers from the left wing tend to fit the right hand best and vice versa. So just a little bit of pen (laughs) trivia for you all. So to actually cut a quill pen, you need a sharp pen knife and some honed skills. Like you need to know what you're doing. There's there's some craft here. And the nib had to be carefully shaped in order for the hollow core to hold the correct amount of ink and then be released smoothly as the writer pressed on it. Otherwise, you just have blobs all over your page. You could actually buy like pre-made quills, like someone else has done all this work for you. And you could purchase those at like an apothecary or stationer or general store. Diane mentioned like a Bic. And of course, they don't have that. But they do have like, "Mm, I like to get my feathers from X store. Like that's, that's a legitimate thing. 
I just love the idea of having your favorite feather purveyor. <laughs> no, I would like to get my ostrich feathers from Horton's down the street. <laughs> like... I think I would really have been a peacock fan myself. <laughs> it's a little bit gaudy, a little bit ostentatious. It's just I'm into it. Perfection, right? In 1803, we actually get the first patent for a metal nib, but it doesn't take off at that point. It's not really until the 1820s and 30s that you start seeing production in factories and steel-tipped pens really taking off. Their quality was further enhanced as technology allowed the steel to be tipped with harder metals. And by about 1850, the quill pen is kind of, you know, it's on its last legs, wings, something like that. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. So, so this is, you know, in order to talk about writing with pens in this or quills in this era, you also have to talk about the pen knife or, or the quill knife. Like, the, like you can't have just your feathers. <laughs> you have to have, they, they're, they're, they're objects that need to be talked about in conjunction, basically. The two are really a set. Yeah, exactly. So pen knives are basically like the equivalent of pencil sharpeners for kids in elementary school. Like this is a must have. So pen knives could be really ornate, um, made of really expensive materials, or having like even fancy jewels on them. Like, I mean, because you have to have one, you they could be super ornate, you know, especially if you're going to get one to like match your fancy peacock feathers, right? You've got to have a, a really bougie kind of pen knife, right? If you're going to be bougie, you might as well be bougie. Right? Like, like lean into it. But, you know, there were also really plain styles that were available as well, with just wooden handles, things like that. And so the pen knife is basically, it's a fixed blade for most of history. But during the 1700s, pen knives could also be folded. So a lot like today's pocket knives. Those are, you know, so that's that's the pen knife that everybody like has to have. So you can have your bougie one or you can have your basic like travel pen <laughs> knife. And this is a bit of a pen knife tangent, but I'm a bookbinding nerd. So everyone just bear with me. So books are printed in large sheets that are then folded into what we call signatures. So in Austin's time, new books were purchased unbound with the signature folds still intact. So like you couldn't turn the pages, like they were folded over. Then the individual buyer would take the book to be bound, often to match the existing volumes in their extensive library. Yes. So fancy. <laughs> and the pages of the book then had to be sliced open so one could actually read the book and turn the pages. Which is why oftentimes when you're reading historical fiction, there'll be a scene where the main character is perusing someone's library and really just learning a lot about the library owner's character through the state of their books. So if the books are all with the signature folds intact, that's how we know that the books are just for show <laughs> and a display of wealth because no one is actually reading them and then we can judge that character. But if the books are well read, then this library is obviously owned by someone very smart in addition to being wealthy and possibly possibly even very hot depending on exactly what type of book we're talking about here <laughs> i like it just important things to take note of <laughs> so in addition to the pen knife there's actually like another possible tool that you could be using um, and it's called the quill knife this one's kind of like a double-edged knife so on one side you do have the long blade which is the pen knife and then on the other side you have a shorter blade that's actually used to kind of like erase mistakes that you make while you're writing it's basically like this really really sharp small blade that you if you misspell something or you drop your ink you basically get on this parchment and you try to like slice out and just shave off the ink once it's kind of dried, which is, I, I didn't even think about how you would erase mistakes on a letter except for checking paper, but paper was so expensive at this time. It was Regency Whiteout. Yeah, absolutely. And then we actually get the first patent on a quill cutting machine. And that was actually patented by Joseph Brahma in 1809. And it's like almost the literal equivalent of pencil sharpeners today. So you would actually put your, your quill tip in, you know, and press this the machine closed and then pull and it would cut a perfect quill tip for you. And what I think is really cool about this one is that, you know, here's an Austin connection in terms of um, adaptation. 
So if you look in the 1999 Mansfield Park adaptation, when the young Edmund is helping Fanny Price write her letter for the first time back home, he actually uses a quill cutting machine. It's actually depicted on how you would use it. So if you want to see a quick little, you know, snippet of how that's how that's done, there is actually an adaptation that makes reference to that. It's kind of cool. So now the moment that you have all been waiting for. (laughs) San and Diane provide you with a tutorial for making or creating your own quill pen. I confess, I have actually watched like multiple YouTube videos on this (laughs) at this point. So I do feel a little bit like a specialist. (laughs) Yeah, we should say like a lot of our information on this is coming courtesy of videos on YouTube. And there's also a great article called Cutting a Quill Pen from the Jane Austen Center in Bath. So using a sharp pen knife, you cut away the tip of the barrel of the barb, which is like the very, very top part of like the sharp pointy tip so that you get kind of an angle going into it. And then you want to make sure that now that you've got this kind of angled tip exposed, there's actually like this like membrane that's now exposed inside the feather, like inside the hollow part. There's like other feathery stuff that you want to need to pull out. After that, you're going to make an additional scoop cut halfway down the first cut. And this makes those fancy nib shapes that will also make the pen sharpen to a point and hold ink better. Then you're going to use the pen knife to barely crack the very tip of the nib. Um, and from there, you're going to use the pen knife to really like shave off. Like this is where you do like the fine tip. And you get to kind of choose how, how fine you want this, how sharp you want those edges. And so you use that pen knife to really finesse the kind of final tip that you're going to use. This is where we're really getting down into personal preference. Yeah, exactly. It's always down to preference, right? And so when Caroline is like, mm, I want to mend your pen, it's kind of intrusive almost. So what, do, what does she mean by I want to mend the pen? Because she's not talking, I want to make a pen for you from scratch, right? Exactly. So mending the pen should not be confused with cutting the pen. Mending the point was maintaining the point of a previously cut quill. So this was pretty easy to do, but again, it's very much about preference. You know, anybody who's using a quill pen would have used that small pen knife for kind of fixing the tip and sort of sharpening it up. So during the course of writing, a point is going to become kind of dull, maybe like slightly misshapen. Like you can imagine what you're writing with. This is this is organic material. It's going to be kind of getting kind of squashed and bent over time. So it's going to need a little bit of fine tuning and then the point will be as good as new. Eventually the quill will be so worn it has to be recut or simply thrown away, but this is kind of the in-between process. So Caroline is essentially offering to reshape the nib. She's not offering to do the whole process from scratch, but she is offering to kind of mend the tip to his, you know, specifications because, okay, well, so many jokes. Um, <laughs> she is offering to, to mend this to what she thinks might be like Darcy's particular specifications. And again, like the feel of the pen nib, it's very personal. It's very much down to preference. So it's really not surprising that Darcy would be like, no, thank you. <laughs> And also, just in general, again, this is like such an obvious flirting tactic. He's kind of like, no, really, no, thank you. <laughs> and this this idea of preference, I mean, this is this is really where a modern comparison comes in, right? This is like the equivalent of like, if Diane and I are going to go down to Staples and get pens, I'm going to have probably a different pen preference than Diane. And I love that you just said Staples like it's 2002. Yeah, I couldn't think of anything else because I don't go into these stores. Maybe I should say Target because I really don't go to a Staples. <laughs> Heading to the Office Depot. <laughs> That's right. But this this really does come down to like preference though, right? So this is this is the equivalent of like, oh, I like to have this type of ink and this type of tip. I mean, I really, I, I'm really weirdly particular about my pens. So I might have a bit of a, t- a Darcy tendency here. You know, I don't want to borrow someone's pen or that's how I, you know, like I don't like it when people borrow my pens because I like really want that back. I have very particular pen needs. That's Thank right. you very much. 
So even though we know that Darcy has all his own preferences, this is my like a genuine question for you, Diane. Like, why do you think Caroline thinks that this is a good like flirting technique? I make really good pen nibs is like the weirdest flex I've ever heard. <laughs> it is a very bizarre bragging point. <laughs> but again, it's not successful. And as we've seen time and time again, Caroline really is the worst flirt. I mean, just... <laughs> She's so bad at it. She's so, so bad at it. I love it so much. It's just, it's exquisite. But it kind of makes sense that she would want to offer to do it for him, right? It's this kind of intimate thing. Mm, it seems yeah. like the kind of like, like a wifely kind of gesture, okay. you know, like, and if like, I can take care of this for you, I can also take care of your household for you. It's very much like she's saying, listen, if I can mend your pen to your liking, think how much you would love me for your wife, you know? <laughs> Again, the euphemism, it's there. We see exactly. it. We're moving on. I can I can tend to all your pens. Anyway. And also Caroline It's so it's so bad. I'm so sorry. Again, she's just notoriously bad at flirting. Yeah. I mean, she tries so hard, but it just never pays off. Like the fact that it just ends with him being silent. Like he tries to kind of be polite for a while, but she just keeps going yeah. and going and going. And he's finally just you could just imagine him sort of like quarter turning his body away, you know? Like, like I cannot talk to you anymore. Really? Please stop. <laughs> I'm just trying to write these letters to my steward. Please, please stop. <laughs> trying to write to my sister, like you won't leave me alone. <laughs> Anyway, people, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Let's find true love for Caroline, okay? It's not working out for her. Let's get her set up on the tinders. She needs help. <laughs> she does need help. That part is clear. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird flirting technique, but I, I guess you're right. that I, I, I definitely can see how it could potentially be this idea of... I, I like that you pointed out that's kind of, it's, it's an intimate detail. The fact that it's like, okay, I, I know you well enough to know all of your little quirks and preferences. I can, I can see that. I think there's also the certain element of just like wanting to really please him. You know, she's kind of like, oh, if I do this and I do a really good job, he'll be so, I don't know, grateful for my pen mending abilities that <laughs> therefore he will fall in love with me. It, again, the logic is just not sound yeah. at all. And also, you know, I think she's, there's a little bit of, I mean, he's not really paying attention to anybody, but if he's going to pay attention to anyone, he's paying attention to Elizabeth. Yeah. She's got to up her game. <laughs> Elizabeth has fine eyes. She can mend pens. Like these are the same things. So this does show up, this idea of, of mending quills and things like that, it does show up in other Austen works. And I mean, and that makes perfect sense because, again, writing is the major medium. This is the way to use writing. But I really particularly love, um, as I mentioned already, the 1999 adaptation of Mansfield Park because not only do they show the scene with Edmund and Fanny when they're children and he gets the paper ready for her, but the whole opening sequence, the opening credits, are actually really beautiful macro shots of preparing paper and pen for writing. I think it's just this really beautiful kind of cinematic homage to Austin's literal writing and all of the things that are inspiring this work that's going to come out of it. And I think it's it also sets up the, the way that they interpret Fanny as a writer as well. So I think I think it really does that a really good job of encapsulating this idea of writing is important. And by opening the credits with preparing paper to set ink to page, I think is a really beautiful thing. It's actually um, this opening sequence. This is not super important, of course, but the soundtrack actually for that film um, also has a song called Pen and Paper. And trivia on Zan is that this soundtrack, the 1989 Mansfield Park soundtrack, is like my absolute favorite writing soundtrack. When I'm doing writing and research, that's my go-to move. I mean, if you're going to listen to something in the background, something called Pen and Paper kind of fits. Right? I mean, I guess they could call it like Screens and Keys would be the modern equivalent. <laughs> it sound but as soothing or... <laughs> just doesn't have quite that same romantical feel to it at all. One of probably the most famous pen quotes out of Austen's novels is also from Mansfield Park, which is at the very end of the book, let other pens dwell on guilt and misery. And then that's kind of like her way of being like, let me just 
I'm going to now summarize for you everything that happened <laughs> real quick in this last chapter because yeah. I don't want to give you the blow by blow of all the plot details of what happened. It's guilt and misery. I don't want to get into it. Yeah, which is it's just it's just so very Austin-esque. I think that quote is so very Austin. And this is like a very high level analysis. I mean, there are papers and papers and papers that have been written specifically like on this quote and what she means here and and all that. But we're just giving you guys the flyby version. That's right. That's right. But it's, it's, such, it's such a great reference to the way that Austin herself writes. It's just it's a very layered statement and it's beautiful. Yes. And as I mentioned before, like pens, they pop up throughout Austin, which of course makes sense because they were such a common everyday sort of object. But again, we have to bring it back to Mansfield Park, which has, I think, the most references. Yeah. So yeah, it makes sense that Mansfield Park is going to actually have the most references to pen and paper, largely because we get that set up early on with Fanny and Edmund and the fact that they actually have their first really true interaction as cousins when he prepares paper for her so that she can write home. These letters to home and these letters to Mansfield Park become actually a major plot point once she leaves Mansfield Park and is reliant on correspondence from, you know, anybody at Mansfield Park, but also from, from Mary Crawford for any idea of what's going on in the place where she most is interested in being. So the fact that pen and paper show up the most in Mansfield Park, I think, makes a certain amount of sense. Pens and pen knives also make appearances in other notable scenes, such as in Persuasion, while Wentworth is writing his letter to Anne, obviously, um, and in Emma, when Harriet keeps the plaster, Elton cuts himself using Emma's pen knife. Just delicious intrigue there. Yes. So, and those are all scenes which definitely deserve their own episodes, although we probably won't be necessarily doing a deep dive just into pens and pen knives right, in those right. and getting into the history. That was what this episode is for, but we wanted to mention them again as like notable scenes. Yeah, definitely. So do you see them popping up in any other places, Diane? I feel like this is becoming a trend with me where I'm like, well, let me tell you about this thing in historical romance or whatever. (laughs) Hey, we're here for this. So I unfortunately cannot remember the exact book. I don't remember if it was a piece of Pride and Prejudice fanfic or retelling or or whatever, but it was something like that. It was one of those kind of continuation type of pieces. And it was after Lizzie and Darcy are married. And at some point they go shopping or Darcy receives a package. I don't remember the details. But anyway, so he has gotten some of these newfangled steel pen nibs and he is very excited it is a moment in the book and i think it's supposed to kind of portray like you know he's like very forward thinking mm-hmm. he's open to innovation and science and and that he didn't marry caroline Bingley, so has nobody to him his pens for him exactly it doesn't even matter if elizabeth is terrible at mending pens because he's into these steel nibs now like who cares not only was it a bad flirting technique but just it became obsolete like a couple years later both a poor flirting technique and soon to be an obsolete flirting technique. Poor Caroline. She cannot catch a break. Poor Caroline. She's such a snob, but I still feel so bad oh for her. Gosh, that is hilarious. <laughs> anyway, on that delightful note, you can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out additional episode details on our new website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. Basically, we're everywhere on the internet now, people. So <laughs> anywhere you want to find us, we are there. Right. And we so appreciate all the support for the podcast and everyone who's been listening and sharing. And I know we say this every week, but if you do feel so moved, five-star review on Apple Podcasts is always greatly appreciated. And stay tuned for our next episode where we will be talking about spinsters. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.